What happens when you get comfortable? I was recently challenged by the notion of being happy with life, but also feeling stuck at the same time. Was it not always you're free and happy, or you're stuck and therefore unhappy? Here's one plausible answer. We're happy about some parts of our lives and we feel stuck in others. What I remember occupying most of my past four years is discomfort. I was riding the emotional roller coaster of a long distance relationship. He was just an hour away by car, but still far enough. We were both in school with crazy agendas. Whenever we wanted to talk or cuddle, we had to wait until the weekend. Sure, scheduled Skype dates and phone calls during the week helped reduce the tension, but what about those explosions? Those fireworks that stem from the inconveniences, changes of plans, and miscommunications in scheduling. Those were not fun. During times when we were already dissatisfied with the conditions of always needing to wait for each other, when expectations were unmet, disappointment felt like hell. For most of my childhood, I was stuck. Why? For one thing, I was not the kind of student I wanted to be. I wanted to be a high-achieving student, the one making all the grades and excelling in every subject. Now, some of you who were my classmates back in the day are probably thinking, did we not go to the same school? Because I'm pretty sure you were. Well, you were deceived. I may have been a quiet Asian violinist, but those ingredients do not guarantee a top-of-the-class kind of student. Was I happy though? I think I was happy. I was praised for my musical abilities, I was perceived to be excelling at school, I was always laughing with my friends, so I think so. Recently, I've been telling my boyfriend that I'm at my happiest now, implying that I somehow wasn't during all those moments when I so confidently claimed that I was. How about when I made more of an effort to keep in touch with my friends and hang out with other people was in a rare occurrence in my agenda? How about when I filled up free time to curl up in bed watching Netflix or reading a book? How about when family bonding time looked like everyone pulling their heads back, laughing over a reenactment of such a positive memory that even after the passing of a decade, none of us can shake it off? We already know that standards of happiness are relative. My parents think that a rounder, fatter version of myself is a happier me. My relatives think that a larger paycheck is a happier me. My friends think that a more famous me is a happier me. I think having a handful of quality friendships is a happier me. Can a person's standard of happiness change over time? Just over a year ago, the New Yorker published an article that revolves around a study on students' recollection of the Challenger accident. Neiser, a cognitive psychologist and a professor who was interested by flashbulb memories, those memories that seem to make a lasting impression on the mind, gave out a survey that asked what students could remember about the shuttle explosion. What was happening around them when they heard the news? Who were they with? What were they doing? Two and a half years later, the same students were given the same questionnaire. The students' recollections were rated on accuracy, and while the average student scored less than 50%, the students had confidence levels of, on average, 4.17 out of 5, 5 being the highest. The Challenger accident had peaked emotions for many. How could someone who claimed that they remembered the incident, as if it was just yesterday, be so wrong? After all, we remember better if the memory is vivid. 
That makes sense, doesn't it? We know exactly how those arguments played out. We were definitely angry. We remember how great that movie was. Our hearts were pounding. When my boyfriend makes a mistake that triggers me to feel upset, I sometimes fall into the habit of saying, "You always," as if this wasn't the first time he's made this mistake. And then I run into the embarrassment of drawing blanks to back up my always. He probably also doesn't like that I have a habit of reflecting on my relationship at the end of the day. To provide better context, I have a habit of reflecting on a lot of things. Before my boyfriend and I go to sleep, I stump him with questions like, "Are you happy with the relationship? Why are you happy?" I eventually give in to his general answers and go to sleep with a sense of doubt that would push me to continue this routine of asking the following night. I started to wonder if my memory was failing to come up with. More detailed examples of happiness. As far as we were both concerned, I thought I had a working memory. A couple of years ago, I read *Thinking Fast and Slow* by Daniel Kahneman. Kahneman distinguishes two systems of thinking: System One and Two. System One is associated with fast thinking, intuitive, and decision making based on gut feeling. System Two is slow. System two focuses on rational, ordered thinking. Kahneman explores the different ways that heuristics and biases, thinking processes from System one that are not so logical, lead us astray from being the rational consumers that Adam Smith claims we are. A lot of our decision making is rooted in human nature's preference for laziness over effort, and our brain's tendencies toward pattern recognition. Let's go back to the experiment with the Challenger incident. It was a vivid event that people couldn't remember accurately. What happened? Turns out that with vivid images, we tend to experience tunnel vision, so we end up throwing out the stuff on the peripheral. The memory feels really strong, so that's how our confidence can be misplaced. The people thought they were confident with every part of that event, when they only remembered accurately what was central in the tunnel vision. This ties nicely with Kahneman's illusion of validity bias, that our confidence does not measure accuracy. This reminded me of something I came across in teacher school. In my teaching credential program, we learn about PJ's two processes through which we make sense of new information. Assimilation is the process of adapting new information to fit our existing schema, our conception of the world. And accommodation is reevaluating what we think we know in the face of information that challenges us. As you might have guessed, when we grow older, most of us tend to do more assimilating than accommodating. But I think our tendency to have a preference for how we adopt information isn't highlighted enough. When I was teaching middle school, I taught math to two grade levels, seventh and eighth. There was overlap in the content that they were learning. At one point, both grades were learning about angles at the same time. With seventh grade, the demand for knowing terminology wasn't as high, but both classes were working to achieve very similar content objectives. If we look at the progression of our own education, isn't that how we've been learning? We're first introduced to a lot of subjects that we repeatedly come back to quite early on, like, for instance, algebra. We start with it in elementary school. We return to it in middle school, and surely high school and college. However, it seems that when the subject was introduced to us, it wasn't always fully presented. More often than not, the first time that it was introduced, it didn't make a lot of sense. But we were supposed to ride along with it until the next time we see it. 
Now, having gone through a teaching credential program, I know that a lot of teachers with an elementary level credential are only asked to reach the bare minimum to qualify as knowing the content, and that is to pass a test. In California, it's called the CSET for multiple subjects. Now, I'm not even going to go any further on the irony of why the teachers in the classrooms are encouraged to use different means other than testing, especially multiple choice questions, to measure their students' success when testing is one of the main qualifications in the application of a California credential program for future public school teachers. The point that I'm trying to make is that if we want to discourage assimilating information that in extremes can lead to heuristics of wrongly filling holes in our memory and therefore misjudging our own happiness and stuckness, Teachers shouldn't be spending most of their credential program reading about theories of learning processes like assimilation to validate the practice of letting students refer to rays as lines or color pencils as crayons. Teachers often teach for the shiny eyes of their students, and that's tunnel visioning at work. But let's not do it through misleading analogies and fun methods to swallow a knowledge that doesn't always make sense. It's going to come down to support for teachers, not just a benefits package for the help that we get after we hurt ourselves on the job. I'm talking about help that occurs long before the teacher even steps into a classroom, really preparing teachers for the content, not just for some test that they have to pass, and better informing them on who their students are months before the start of the school year. At least that's my advice at the systemic level. As for the rest of us, one. Next time you feel confident about an event, you know you got down the main part of the event, but not necessarily the details. Two, if you want to really remember all of it, write it down, take pictures, because feeling confident isn't always enough. Three, and finally, the next time you catch yourself using the word always, and then reevaluating its validity, give yourself a pat on the back. I'm Ivana, and I'll be back soon with more adventures from A Writer's Journey.